Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. How are you this week? Did you survive the storms? My goodness gracious. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I hope everybody weathered the storms okay. The the further south you went, the better off you were. Those of you in Valdosta and and Vidalia even, uh, equipment in Bainbridge and and Waycross, I I think you, you largely escaped, but... Man, from middle Georgia north, we were without power here in Macon in our neighborhood for, gosh, most of Saturday night. Uh, storms still coming, although they're they're now mostly north of Macon. I've got the radar up. Let me just fill you in right now. There is a flash flood warning, not a watch, but a warning in Coweta, Fayette, Merriweather, Pike, Spalding, Troop, Green, Oglethorpe, uh, Tolliver, uh, and Wilkes counties. Uh, I see Tolliver, and I always say Talifero. It's Tolliver. Uh, I have been yelled at plenty of times. Uh, you, you got two different uh, store bands. Now, the one in Coweta, Fayette, Merriweather, Pike, Spalding, and Troop, it expires now in four hours, 52 minutes. Uh, the one in Green, Oglethorpe, Tolliver, and Wilkes County expires in five hours, 52 minutes. Uh, they are this line of storms stretched from LaGrange all the way over to uh, Augusta, slightly north of Augusta, and uh, Rome is now out of them. Clarksville and Athens is in the middle of it. Clarksville's got more coming in. Dalton and Jasper, by and large, are out of it right now. Um, But if you're out at Lake Oconee, if you're in Augusta, uh, really even in Middle Georgia, we got some rain moving through Middle Georgia. It's raining, raining at my studio in Macon right now. Although it's about to disappear from here, as the radar shows, it's all going to be north of here now. Uh, and it looks like there's going to be some more rain moving into Rome and uh, Jasper and Dalton here. And the man, John, John, Dalton, you're going to be in the clear. Jasper and Rome, you're going to get a little more rain. And then it's going to be done for now. But we're going to have a rainy, rainy forecast around the state of Georgia today. So just make sure your headlights are on. If it's raining where you are, uh, you got a lot of rain. Really, the line, just so you get a sense of where the storm is, it is a line that essentially goes from uh, Rome to uh, Tacoa. Uh, and everything south of there until you get to a line from Columbus to Augusta is rain. Uh, right now, it's 66 here where I am in Macon. I mean, talk about a, a warm winter. It is 55 in Adairsville, 61 in Rome, 52 Blue Ridge, 55 Carrollton, 54 Clarksville, 52 Dalton, 52 Jasper, 54 Rome, 68 all the way down in Valdosta, 66 in Vidalia. Uh, so in the, mostly in the 60s here, it's going to warm up some, but it's supposed to start getting cool again after next weekend. Maybe we'll actually have some more winter. Our southern weathers are bizarre. Uh, what a mess the weather was. Now, we've got news we need to get to. I want to take care of that w- weather radar, though, because it has been a, a mess out there, genuinely has been a mess out there. Uh, and I I just I, I wanted to engage uh, on that issue now. Uh, I also want to mention that tonight, well, I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time. Let me, let me treat you guys as confessional here. I know you want news, but, but you're my confession booth now and I'm Presbyterian, so we don't do this, but I can't decide whether or not to watch the, the LSU Clemson game because I want LSU to win because I'm from Louisiana and this is big, but I'm afraid if I watch, they're going to lose. So do I not watch and they win, or do I watch and potentially they lose? And I don't want to make, oh, I know the Tigers are going to win jokes because everybody's doing that. But seriously, um, 
I don't know what to do. I'm 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 thinking I'm I'm gonna have to sneak a peek at the game. I am. Okay, that that's that's all I need to say about that. Turns out the New York Times was wrong. Surprise! Uh, the New York Times, remember, uh, within 48 hours of Soleimani being killed, the New York Times ran a story that suggested that uh, the people in the military were surprised and in the intelligence community were surprised that the president of the United States had decided to execute Soleimani or give an order that he could be blown up. Uh, they, they, they did not know about it. They were discombobulated. In fact, one of the people told the New York Times they had thrown it into a stack of stuff. And that was what the president went with. And they put it in there so that all the other stuff would sound reasonable. Now, Here's what you need to understand about this. Seriously, uh, I hear these stories all the time. And they are, by pattern and practice, la resistance, progressive fan fiction. I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard these stories that the somebody did something to the president and they went with the most outlandish thing to make everything else seem reasonable. And, oh, no, the president went with the most outlandish decision. I, I've heard it when it comes to tariffs. I've heard it when it came to uh, the Israeli, uh, to the, the embassy. I've heard it when it came to dealing with, um, uh, with uh, the, the, what's his name, um, Khashoggi, the killing. Uh, on and on, these stories come up. They give Trump a list of options. They put one really crazy wild card in there so that it will steer him towards the more reasonable ones. And he always goes with it. You hear these stories all the time. And here comes the New York Times story that says the military, to deal with the uh, Iraqi situation, the military decides to give Trump a list of options, and they throw in the or they throw in the Soleimani killing to make everything else seem more reasonable. And oh my gosh, he went with Soleimani. What are we gonna do now? We gotta do it. Oh no! These stories happen regularly. It is fan fiction. We now know it's not true. Here is a story from NBC News. President Donald Trump authorized the killing of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani seven months ago if Iran's increased aggression resulted in the death of an American, according to five current and former senior administration officials. Now, note the rhetoric here. According to five current and former senior administration officials, not five current and not five former, but five current and former. So it could be one current and four former senior administration officials. The presidential directive in June came with a condition that Trump would have final sign-off on any specific operation to kill Soleimani. The decision explains why assassinating Soleimani was on the menu of options the military presented to Trump two weeks ago for responding to an attack by Iranian proxies in Iraq in which a U.S. contractor was killed and four service members were wounded. The timing, however, could undermine the Trump administration's stated justification for ordering the U.S. drone strike that killed Soleimani. Officials have said Soleimani... The leader of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' elite Quds force was planning imminent attacks on Americans and had to be stopped. Now, here's the thing. In June, John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor at the time, urged Trump to take out Soleimani. Mike Pompeo also wanted Trump to take out Soleimani, and Trump rejected the idea, saying he'd take the step only if Iran crossed his red line, killing an American. The president's message was, that's only on the table if they hit Americans. Now, 
here's let, let's put this in perspective. The New York Times ran a story that the president went after Soleimani because someone in the military put it on a list of options, knowing that it was so extreme the president wouldn't choose it. NBC is now saying that actually the president decided seven months ago at the urging of Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State and John Bolton as National Security Advisor that he should do it, but they wouldn't do it unless Soleimani took out uh, Americans. Soleimani takes out Americans, he dies. Well, if you listen to NBC, they're saying the idea of an imminent attack was nonsensical because this has been seven months in the works. If you listen to the New York Times, they say it hasn't been seven months in the works. It was someone in the military put this in on the, uh, to try to make the president go with more reasonable options and was shocked and appalled the president went with that option. Neither of these stories undermine the truth, but they undermine each other. So which is it? Was it a, a rash decision to kill Soleimani or has it been in the works for seven months? Now, if you re, if you go with the, if you go with NBC News and not the New York Times, and frankly, I would go with NBC and not the New York Times because uh, NB, uh, the New York Times has a history of running sources and sourcing that intend to willfully undermine the president of the United States. Uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me if if the whistleblower was one of the New York Times sources. Remember, he is in the intelligence community still. Whoever the whistleblower may be, we know he is actively in the intelligence community. And the New York Times has relied on that guy for sourcing in the past, so I'm sure they'd rely on him now to make the president look bad. And it certainly seems in light of this NBC News report that the New York Times sources really did want to make the president look bad. But now the NBC story says the president decided on it seven months ago that could undermine uh, the justification for it. What if, in addition to killing Americans, they did find, in fact, that the president and his intelligence operatives and the military found that there was an imminent attack that he was plotting? Now, I need to ask you this. Those of you who are skeptical of the president, and I am skeptical of the president, but I support him completely on this decision. Is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a liar? Is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a liar? He is a career military operative. Chairman, I'm Googling, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Let's go with who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff right now is Mark Miley. Mark Miley has been chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff since October 1st. American Army General, 20th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest ranking officer in the United States military. He previously served as 39th chief of staff of the Army. He was born in Massachusetts. He went to Belmont Hill School. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Politics from Princeton, a Master's uh, in International Relations from Columbia, a Master's in National Security from the U.S. Naval War College, graduate of the MIT Center for International Studies. He earned his commission as an armor officer through Princeton's Army Reserve Training Corps, the ROTC program in 1980. 
He served in the 82nd Airborne Division, the 5th Special Forces Group, 7th Infantry Division, the 2nd Infantry Division, the Joint Readiness Training Center, the 25th Infantry Division, Operations Staff of the Joint Staff, and as a military assistant to the Secretary of Defense in the Pentagon. In November 2000, he participated in the 2nd Annual Army-Navy Ice Hockey Game in Honolulu. He's had multiple command and staff positions in eight divisions and special forces throughout the last 39 years to include command of the 1st Battalion, 506th Infantry, 2nd Infantry Division, Miley Command of the 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 10th Mountain Division Light from December 2003 to July 2005, served as Deputy Commanding General of Operations for the 101st Airborne from July of 2007 to April 2008. He was the commander of the 10th Mountain Division from November 2011 to December 2012. He served as Commanding General of the Corps based in Fort Hood, Texas from 2012 to 2014. He's the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Forces Command in Fort Bragg, North Carolina from 2014 to 2015. He was appointed Chief of Staff to the United States Army on October 14, 2015 by Barack Obama. On December 8, 2018, he was uh, nominated by the president to serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He took it, uh, was voted on by the Senate, confirmed 89 to 1, sworn in September 30th, 2019. Is General Miley a liar? You have his resume. Is General Miley, Mark Miley, a liar? Do you believe that General Miley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is a liar? Because General Miley says they had credible information that Soleimani was planning an imminent attack on Americans in the Middle East. Is he a liar? Is he just the president's yes man? This careerist military officer, the highest ranking member of the military, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is he lying to protect the president over his soldiers? Because there are a lot of people in the media who subtly want you to believe that this man is a liar. President Trump came out and said it was an attack on American embassies that was the problem. No one has information to back up the president on that. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff doesn't have information on it. The Secretary of Defense doesn't have information on it. The Secretary of State doesn't have information on it. It appears to be something the president said. But no one else knows what he's talking about. But the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, the CIA director, the Secretary of, of State, the National Security Advisor, they all have said to Congress behind closed doors that there was an imminent attack in the works by Soleimani and that it was necessary to take him out. Were they all lying? Because the media wants you to believe that the president was lying. The media wants you to believe there was no justification. Meanwhile, what's happening in Iran now? You have protesters marching in the streets, rejoicing that Soleimani was killed, and now wanting the, the Ayatollah out of office. The president certainly destabilized the Middle East by killing Soleimani. He destabilized Iran. The protesters feel emboldened. They're being gunned down in the streets. And do you know what the media is doing? They've moved on. 
They were perfectly happy to cover the number of people who showed up at Soleimani's funeral, but can they cover the number of people who are out in the streets right now? Nope. Can't be bothered by it. they got to talk about Megxit, the Meghan Markle, Harry, Prince Harry exit. That's way more important now than what's happening in Iran. Why? Because they don't dare risk the president looking good. Honest news and conservative views. Never separated from the truth. It's the Eric Erickson Show. Yes, as a matter of fact, the state legislature in Georgia convenes today. If you want to be an activist, you want to make, you want me to make it easy for you to reach out to your member of the state legislature. Uh, as action is pending, text the word ARMY to 33777. Uh, we will actually do a deep dive into the legislature later in the show today as they convene in Atlanta uh, for the first time since last year. Now, uh, a little more on the Iran situation. It, just so you understand, the, the president tweeted in Farsi, that is the, the Persian language, and it is the most liked tweet in uh, history for the Persian language, uh, which is saying something, he essentially calling for the press to be able to freely and fairly cover what's going on and for the protesters to have the right to do it. Uh, Iranian students are leading big protests across the country of Iran, the president voicing support for it. What's so interesting here, I, I gotta, I, I, I don't have time to, to go into everything that, that I want to say here, but l let me let me put this up first. I've seen members of the media, so the president sends out this tweet in Farsi so that the Iranian people can see it and read it without it having to be translated by Iranian censors. And the president calls for a free press in Iran to be able to cover what's going on honestly and for the rights of the protesters to protest. And the American media pulls a what about and decides that the angle they're going to cover is not what's happening in the streets of Iran, but what about the president's treatment of the press in the United States? I, I does anybody, I mean, you can call in if so, the, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm unaware of any reporter in the United States, who's been gunned down on orders of President Trump? Is there any anybody have have any idea who the reporters are in this country who've been gunned down on orders of the president? Because that's the way the media is taking this is is the the butt Trump angle, the butt Trump angle, the the president gun these people down, how terrible uh, the the president's awful. Let, pay no attention to the protesters in the streets. You know, Nancy Pelosi herself supremely dismissive of what's going on in the streets supremely dismissive of the of the protesters protesting in the streets of of Tehran doesn't want to give credit to the president doesn't want to attract uh, attention to the president. Uh, someone who at least was was being able to be honest about it, uh, Senator Coons, and in fact, I'll be on HBO with him next Friday night. I will, a, a week from this Friday, I won't be here. I've got to be on HBO, uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. I do it uh, two to three times a year. I do Bill Maher's show, and I'll be on with Senator Coons of, of Connecticut. Here he is on TV yesterday. Senator, isn't it possible that President Trump's 
action decision worked, that it took out one of our worst enemies in the Middle East and reestablished American deterrence? Well, it certainly took out one of our worst enemies in the Middle East. Let's start there. None of us are going to mourn the passing uh, of General Qasem Soleimani, the Quds Force, which he commanded, uh, was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of Americans in Iraq and throughout the region, thousands of civilians. So nobody should be mourning his passing. And then there's this. There is no question that as part of the Iran nuclear deal, the deal that John Kerry and Barack Obama negotiated, Iran got back billions of dollars in frozen assets and that it used those assets to spread terror, give it to Hezbollah, Hamas, other bad actors around the Middle East. Would you be willing to concede that as part of the president's maximum pressure campaign, that at least they turned off the terror money spigot. And there's been a real impact on the Iranian economy and on the resources available uh, to the terrible Iranian regime as a result of the maximum pressure campaign. So that's a success. That's a positive. I will have you know I did send out the pound cake and the gumbo recipe last week. Uh, I, I really did. If you want it and you didn't get it because you weren't on the list, if you text the word recipe to 33777, you'll get a uh, request for your email address, and then I'll email you a link that has the gumbo and the pound cake recipe, along with all the other recipes I've sent out. Uh, but you got to text recipe to 33777 to make it happen. Uh, all right. I, I want to play this Pelosi audio. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was on uh, ABC News uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos. He asked her about the Iranian protesters, and listen to this. Of war. The question is how we get there. We're seeing now demonstrations in the streets of Iran against the regime. Do you support those protesters, and would it be a good thing if they brought the regime down? Well, the regime, the protesters are, are protesting, as I understand it, this brand of protesters, about the fact that that plane went down, and many students... Uh, were on that plane, and these are largely students in the street. I think the Iranians should have not had commercial flights going off when there they're was. They're calling out the regime for lying. They're saying death to Khamenei as well. No, well, whatever it is. But the fact is this: the, the there were protesters in the streets before against the regime. After the taking out of Soleimani, there were protesters in the street joined together as you know, against us. That wasn't good. Taking down this plane is a terrible, terrible tragedy. And they should be held accountable for letting commercial flights go at a time that was so, so dangerous. Uh, but there are different reasons why uh, people are in the street. Uh, of course, we would love to see uh, the aspirations of the people of Iran uh, realized uh, with a better situation there. But escalating uh, the situation, unless we've exhausted every other remedy. Which we haven't? Well, we don't know that. Uh, we don't know that. And, and if the first, uh, uh, first action to be taken on the threat of... Uh, uh, there, there are a lot of bad actors who are doing bad things and threatening bad things to us. We know that, Iran being one of them, and it being a, uh, its proxies. Uh, doing bad things to our our interest throughout the world, but how do we deal with that in a way that calms rather than escalates? Remember when the president got attacked after the Charlottesville thing by saying there were good people on on both sides? It was distorted by the media as to what he was talking about. He actually wasn't talking about the the white supremacists who were marching. It was blown out of control, um, blown out of proportion by the media and. and uh, they, they, 
they implied he was saying it about the white supremacists when he actually wasn't. I, I actually was one of the people who originally, based on the media reports, thought he was talking about it being good people on both sides, including the white supremacists, and had to go back and review the tape to, and realize that that's not what he was talking about at all. But here comes Nancy Pelosi essentially saying, well, there are bad people on both sides. Can she not just stand up and say that the protesters should be supported? You know, this president of, of all the presidents in American history, we, we've or in recent American history, I should say, not all American history, in recent American history. This president has shown the least propensity for wanting to engage in nation building and the least propensity for the least propensity for wanting to go on the attack. And can we not give him credit for that? Can we not give this president of the United States credit for wanting to to not engage in the Middle East as aggressively as his predecessors? Can we not give him credit for causing a situation in the Middle East that is actually now beginning to destabilize Iran? Well, this is the first president since George W. Bush. Remember Barack Obama in the Green Revolution in Iran, he sided with the... He, he sided with the with the Iranian regime. He the, the protesters wanted hope. The protesters wanted the American voice to 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 speak up. You notice, by the way, whether it's in Taiwan, if if you haven't heard in Taiwan, uh, Taiwan uh, elected reelected the Taiwanese president who is vocally against Beijing. She was behind in the polls behind a candidate who is very sympathetic to Beijing's uh, one-nation claims. And after the protests in Hong Kong, they have re-elected now overwhelmingly the president of Taiwan. Hong Kong dissidents came to Taipei, Taiwan, to watch and witness a free and fair election. It's not Iranian flags, it's not British flags, it's not Canadian flags or Swiss flags or German flags or French flags that these protesters fly in the streets when they want freedom. It is the American flag. It is the American flag that is flying in Hong Kong along with the British flag because they're a former colony. It's the American flag that is flying in the streets of Taipei. It is the American flag that is being held up in Iran. There was video that came out yesterday of students walking around the Israeli and the American flag refusing to step on them despite... uh, Iranian censors trying to get them to step on those flags. Are we not able to voice support for these protesters without it being an either or situation? No one is asking us to invade Iran and this president's propensity is to not do that. But can we not support the protesters? Seems like we should support the protesters. And Pelosi and the Democrats refuse to do that. Here's uh, the president's national security advisor, O'Brien, on the Soleimani killing. What more can and will the United States do to support those protesters? And does the United States basically now support a policy of regime change? Well, look, it's never been our policy to change the regime in, in Iran, but the people of Iran are going to have, uh, you know, hopefully have the ability at some point uh, uh, to elect their own government and to be governed by uh, the, the leaders they choose. I mean, we hope that around the world, but uh, that's not our policy, and, and we're going to support uh, human rights. Uh, the best thing we can do for the Iranian people and for, for the world is to continue our maximum pressure campaign to ensure that the Iranian regime never obtains a nuclear weapon, stops their terrorist activities in the region, and cuts back on their ballistic missile program. We're going to keep doing that. We're going to work with our allies 
And I think we're going to see some uh, additional assistance on that front coming out of Europe uh, that has not been forthcoming in the past. But I think you're going to see the Europeans getting on board uh, in, in the coming weeks as well. Good for them. We're not going for aggressive regime change. We're not going to to overthrow the Iranian regime. But can we not? Can we not at least stand up and and speak with one voice for the protesters? Now, along those lines, I got some time here. I want to stretch. I I, I want to stretch this out separately and, and philosophically, if you will, because I I noticed something this weekend, and I actually had a, a text exchange with a friend who was who was noticed it and was texting me as well. Uh, the the friend who was texting me. How do I put this? I can't go into names. See, this is the problem. So I, I've got a friend who you would all know who is rather, rather famous, who was sending me a, a text, uh, and it was a text to a mutual friend, who you would all know, who was blowing up a politician. And you would know all of these people. You would know the politician. Well, you know, I'll tell you the politician. I'll tell you the, the politician's Ted Cruz. And th- th- this friend of mine who was texting me was saying, well, I can't, it was profanity laced, but basically what on earth is going on? Why is this mutual friend of ours savaging Ted Cruz on social media when Ted Cruz and this guy are friends? And it was all because Ted Cruz supports the president's justification for killing Soleimani and says, in fact, there was an imminent attack by Soleimani that uh, the killing of Soleimani upended and our troops were protected. And so this friend of mine was seeing if I had seen it, wanting to know if he should reach out to our mutual friend who was blowing up Ted Cruz and, and telling basically, calm down, calm down, dude. It's okay. We can disagree on this. And we decided not to, and we decided not to because we have reached a point in this country now where all of us, it seems, and I'm going to put myself in the mix, and and I I try not to be this person, but all of us, it seems, do seem to be more and more unwilling to extend grace to one another when it comes to this political season. Y'all, we are in a political time in this country that it's not like it hasn't existed. Uh, This is not new history. We've had these disruptive events in American history, but none of us were alive for any of them. Whether it was the 18-teens or or the early 1900s or the the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, none of us were alive for those times. Uh, We are in uncharted territory in the United States at this moment when it comes to American politics, at least for us. And all of those other times, whether it was the 18-teens or the post-Civil War Reconstruction South or the early 1900s and the rise of the progressive movement then, none of those had what we have now, which is social media where we can all share our thoughts immediately without reflection. They get them out there and, and have the media do stories on 12 people on Twitter and suddenly the internet says when it's 12 random anonymous people on the internet. And what is increasingly going on is that none of us want to show grace to anyone else when our opinions differ. 
everyone is trying to find their way through uncharted times and everyone is arriving at different conclusions and all of us have an obligation i think to show grace to the other people who arrive at a different conclusion from us having assessed the same facts as us the number of people i know who believe you cannot be a conservative unless you support donald trump is only equal to the number of people i know who believe that the you cannot be a conservative if you do support the president of the united states we got people saying you, whether or not you are a conservative depends on your position on the president of the United States as opposed to your position on a host of long-term, long-established, well-established principles of conservatism. A lot of people are angry with their friends and family for either supporting the president or not supporting the president. I actually know someone who, and I don't want to go into details because... Relatives may be listening right now. Theirs, not mine. I know someone who ambushed me. Invited family members to show up at a place where I was. So that I could explain to them why I had changed my mind on supporting the president. Ambushed me. I was there enjoying a party with family. And this person is so committed to the president that they invited family members to come to the party who were not actually invited to the party, but to come because I was there so that they could engage with me on supporting or not supporting the president. Who does that? We are in an age where people have lost their minds over politics. We have the Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives unable and unwilling to support protesters risking their lives in the streets of Tehran because to do so might be seen as her affirming the president's policy. We have reporters who decide to tweet out pictures of the president's inauguration and General Soleimani's death to show that more people turn out for Soleimani's death than for the president's inauguration, and yet they can't bring themselves to acknowledge that many of those people were there against their will and would be killed if they did not show up. We have reporters when the president, after the missile strike from Iran, said all is well, said, oh, he's quoting Animal Farm. This is a line from Animal Farm. He must not really be serious. We have reporters when the president of the United States says that uh, the Iranian regime should allow the free press to cover the protest and, and preserve the lives of the protesters to say, oh, he doesn't really mean it. Look at what he says about the press in the United States. How are you so broken by one man in the White House? There are so many people broken by this president. People who either cannot bring themselves to separate themselves from him. There are, listen, and when I say broken, I'm not, not talking about the people who suffer Trump derangement syndrome in a way that, that makes them criticize everything he does. Uh, even if he says the sky is blue, they'd come out and denounce him. No, I, I know plenty of people who, if the president were to come out tomorrow and say every American deserves strippers and blow, they would be like, heck yeah, in the church too, please. You, you know it, you know these people. The president can do no wrong for some of these people. They're broken. They are as broken as the people who believe the president can do no right. 
None of us have lived through a time like this. And so I got to tell you, when you arrive at different conclusions in public policy, listen, I, and I'm not talking about the, the people who are always progressive, who are always going to hate the president, the people who are always, always Republican, they're always going to have the president's back. I'm talking about the people in between, the people who you've gotten along with in the past and you've seen most things eye to eye. And now suddenly you don't see a lot of things eye to eye and you're wondering what the hell happened to them. They're wondering what the hell happened to you. Show each other grace. Allow others to disagree allow people to arrive at different conclusions. We're not doing that anymore. There are things I believe are true. I believe the God of the universe is truth and I have an obligation to find truth because I believe he is truth. Therefore, there must be absolute truths. I believe there are things that are right. Limited government is right. Out-of-control government spending is wrong, whether the Democrats do it or the Republicans do it, whether Donald Trump is for it or the Democrats are for it. It's wrong. I believe that we should stand up and speak for those around the world who wave the American flag longing to be free, and we should have their backs. And that doesn't mean commit military. It certainly means speak up for them. Speak up for the oppressed around the world who want freedom. I believe that is true. I believe that is right. If the man in the White House shapes your view of what is right and what is wrong. You are a broken human being and we're all broken in some way, but that is a uniquely political way to be broken in this country, in this day and age. And all I can tell you is instead of being enraged with your friend who was your friend in 2015 and now isn't your friend because you've come down differently with each other from on Donald Trump, but you otherwise agreed on everything and had a lot in common, show each other grace that we in this society are not showing each other anymore. Give them that which you think they don't deserve. Give them grace. And maybe they'll show it to you, but don't oblige yourself based on what they do. We are missing that in society right now, and it is just tearing us apart. National Connections, local focus. Eric Erickson is live every weekday. Have you guys heard about the kid who, uh, 17 years old, he's an intern for NASA, and he discovered a planet. He discovered a large, actually two planets, it appears now from the research, two planets. Um, uh, wow, uh, good for that kid. Uh, what a story he's going to have today. He's in high school. And, and did this. Uh, good for him. That That's actually really cool. Um, really, really neat that he did something like that. Uh, by the way, um, there's a big story out at the moment. This, again, this goes to the issue of grace. Um, the... My brain just broke. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I know what it was. There is a, a letter circulating seven former press secretaries in the government. Seven former press secretaries in the government who are calling for a return to the White House press briefings. If you haven't heard, the White House press briefings haven't gone on in some time. And... These press secretaries wanted to come back, and they all worked for Bill Clinton. A couple of them worked for for George W. Bush at the State Department, uh, and then there's Scott McClellan, who was the president's um, he was the president's press secretary for a while until it turned out he was a a partisan Democrat and actually hated everything to do with the Bush administration and left and wrote his tell-all book, Little Scotty, 
and it, it, it terribly embarrassed um, terribly embarrassed everybody in the White House when he did that. His book got no traction, but he's out there as well saying, please, please, uh, please uh, have the White House press briefings. Now, here's the problem is I distinctly remember the, the American media savaging the White House press briefings. All the press briefings did was give the media more reason to hate the president. All the, the White House press briefings did is give them an excuse to complain that the president and, and the, his press secretary and the like, they weren't actually being truthful and how dare they and, and yada, yada, yada. Y'all, why do we need a White House press briefing when the president is his own press secretary? Why do we actually need a White House press briefing when the president himself is his own press secretary? The president himself goes to the White House lawn almost on a twice a week basis and engages with reporters. The president tweets and gets attention. Uh, which would they prefer, really? Uh, do they want a, a off-the-record White House press briefing on a daily basis, or do they want direct access to the President of the United States multiple times a week? Because they got the latter right now. The President's been doing it. And all they did with the White House press briefing, remember, remember, the CNN in particular, CNN was the worst about this. CNN was demanding that they had a White House press briefing and then was refusing to air the White House press briefing. Say, well, they lie all the time. We want to protect our viewers from the lies coming from the White House, so we can't actually run the White House press briefing. But we'll let you know what they said afterwards when we can fact check it. I mean, what's the point of having the White House press briefing then? They don't want to show it to you. They just want to have something to complain about. That's all. They want to have something to complain about. Now, when we come back, the legislature convenes in Atlanta today. The NRA has sent out their alert of what to look for. The legislature in Virginia is beginning to curtail gun rights. I want to talk to you about that. And impeachment is now on the horizon as the articles of impeachment head to the Senate. Turns out Nancy Pelosi screwed it up. We'll get into the details when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Welcome. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I, I want to do something for you. I want to show you the impact that you can have. I, on Friday, told you about uh, my desire to not just tell you what's going on in the world but to provide you ways to make a difference. Our legislature here in Georgia uh, meets today for the first time since last March uh, when they when they ended, we hit sine die, the, the end of their session. The Georgia legislature meets for 60 days. Uh, the way they spread it out, though, they give themselves resource uh, recesses and whatnot. It stretches out to 60 days, uh, can stretch out to, to 90 to 100 days. Uh, as they try to, to carry on with their business. They're having a pro forma session today. 
and one of the issues that is overarching in our state legislature is what to do about David Ralston. David Ralston, the Speaker of the House in Georgia, is a profoundly corrupting individual. Uh, most of the Republicans in the state house do not actually like David Ralston, uh, but they're chicken and they don't want to take stands because they know he will punish them ruthlessly. And they don't want to go out on a limb and not have the rest of the cowards in the, in the, it, 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 the, the Republicans in the house are filled with a bunch of cowards. David Ralston has used his influence to, to delay justice for a number of victims whose client, uh, who he had their their um, accused assailants as clients, he even now this day is hiring someone who was indicted in Alabama over a FBI investigation relating to, to gambling corruption in the state legislature. He's hiring one of the people indicted in that investigation to help the Republicans in the state house hold on to the state house. Some of the Republicans in the state house have refused to pay their caucus funds because they don't want someone who is indicted uh, in Alabama in a corruption probe to be in charge of their money. And yet the speaker is daring to do this. It's going to turn into a scandal. It's going to turn into another immediate attack. It's going to be another hit by the Democrats. So the Republicans are so scared of David Ralston that they're not willing to stand up and say this man needs to go. Ten of them have. Ten of them have. Ten of them have signed on to a resolution authored by State Representative David Clark. David Clark has now been punished by the Speaker. David Clark, a, a, a veteran of the United States military, has been stripped of his committee positions by David Ralston for daring to say that Ralston is corrupt and needs to go. Uh, Clark is a Republican. He's a conservative. He's a Christian. He's a Republican. And he's been stripped of his power in the State House for daring to stand up and say that the Speaker needs to go. He is braver than most of his colleagues. Only 10 of them have stood up and said the Speaker needs to go. And what I hear constantly from the legislature is that the ones in the metro area know there's a problem, but it is the uh, Republican legislators in South Georgia and Middle Georgia who won't stand up. It is the Republicans who represent uh, Albany and Quitman and Bainbridge and Vidalia and Valdosta and Adele and Tifton and Cordell and Macon and Warner Robbins and Gray and uh, Roberta and Columbus and Augusta and Savannah. It's they are the ones who won't stand up and say anything because their constituents have no idea. Their constituents don't get the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Their constituents do not read the newspapers from Atlanta that have chronicled David Ralston's corruption. Their newspapers don't have the stories. Their newspapers, you would have no idea that a good chunk of the Republicans in the state legislature are worried they're going to lose the House because the Democrats are going to use David Ralston's corruption against some of these swing district Republicans. They have no idea. Because their constituents are complaining to them, they decide it's not an issue. And the only way they're going to change their mind is if their constituents stand up with those in the metro Atlanta area and say, you know what, we, we need a better speaker. We need a speaker who's not going to be mired in scandal. And y'all, this election so important. Whoever controls the House and Senate in Georgia in 2020 will redraw the redistricting lines. Do you want to take a chance on the Democrats redrawing the district lines in Georgia? 
do you want to take a chance on the Democrats taking over the Georgia House? If you're willing to take the risk, then stick with David Ralston. If you're willing to take the risk, then go for it. But I got to tell you, think of people like Houston Gaines in Athens. It is the most targeted seat in the state house by the Democrats. It is the most, most targeted seat. The Democrats are convinced they can take out Houston Gaines. And one of the ways they're going to take out Houston Gaines in Athens is by tying him to the Speaker of the House. Because Houston Gaines doesn't have the courage to stand up and say the Speaker needs to go. Houston Gaines doesn't have the courage to sign on to David Clark's resolution. Houston Gaines is emboldening a Speaker who prevented a variety of women from getting justice from their abusers. I told you the story last week. I played you the audio of the mom, the girl up in Blue Ridge who was raped by a pastor. The, she tried to commit suicide. That's the only way the parents found out. And when the parents decided to pursue it, the pastor hired David Ralston as his, as his lawyer. And David Ralston was able to drag the case out for almost a decade. Until the girl, just a few months ago, only because of the media spotlight, only because of the media exposure, only because of the media was the girl able to finally get closure and finally able to get justice, and her assailant didn't get jail time. It had gone on for so long. He took a plea, and will go back to Ohio, and will not spend a day in jail, a pastor, for molesting a child. David Ralston dragged it out so long the victim could barely get closure. And he only pushed it to a close because of the media spotlight. And that's wrong. And you're kidding yourselves if you don't think the media is going to turn this into a big scandal the moment the legislature goes away and the elections start. You're kidding yourself if you don't think that the... Um, that, that the Democrats aren't going to use this as an issue against Houston Gaines and others. So I would urge you to tell your state legislator that David Ralston needs to go. I would urge you to tell your state legislator that they need to stand up and they need to show David Ralston the door, that they need a new speaker, that he needs to go, that if he doesn't go, the Republicans are in danger of losing the House of Representatives. Now, I want to give you the opportunity to make a difference here. I want to show you what a fully operational conservative radio program can do for you. If you have your cell phone handy, if you have your cell phone handy, I want you to pull your cell phone out right now. And I want you to text the word speaker to 52886. Text the word speaker 
to 52886 and watch the magic happen. Y'all, I bought this activist package uh, several years ago uh, for my other radio show. I pay for it out of pocket. Uh, I, I do not get reimbursed by any radio station or company for this. I just believe that if I can make it possible for you to reach out to your state legislator as easy as possible, I should do that. And I should help you be able to engage. I should help you be able to uh, reach out to your state legislator. I should help you be able to advance legislation or stop legislation. I should make you aware of what's going on in the state legislature. I should provide you ways to be engaged. You shouldn't just be sitting around listening to me complain about stuff. You should be able to get involved and fix the situation. You should be able to get involved, be empowered enough to, to pick up your phone. You can send a tweet. You can send an email. If you text the word speaker to 52886, here's what's going to happen. You text speaker to 52886, you get a link back. It says, thanks for being willing to lend your voice. Take action now. And you click the link. And it's going to ask for your address. And then it's going to say, here's your state representative. Do you want me to send an email saying the speaker needs to go? And you say, you click yes, away the email goes, automatically generated for you. And then it says, hey, do you want to call your state representative? You click yes, and you're going to call your state. It'll automatically connect you to your state representative. And you can tell, you can leave a message for your state representative this morning. The speaker needs to go. All you got to do is text speaker to 52886. It is my way of helping you connect to your legislature. And by the way, we don't do this just for Georgia. We'll do it for national stuff too. I've used this thing for, for gun measures, for the, for the Kavanaugh hearings, for the like, to, to get senators to stand with Brett Kavanaugh, to get uh, members of Congress to stop gun control legislation, uh, I, to, to support a balanced budget, to support the government shutdown with the president, to support funding for the border wall. We use this all the time. It is my way of helping you engage with your members of the state legislature and Congress, because I'm really, I, I do not believe I should just tell you what's wrong with the world. I should provide you the opportunity to improve it. All you've got to do is take the, take the chance. All you got to do is, is take the opportunity. I make it as easy as I can. Every single one of you probably has a cell phone. And all you got to do is pick it up and put in the numbers. In this case, it's 52886 is the number. And the word is speaker. You text the word speaker to 52886, and I will connect you within the next minute to your member of the state legislature. It is a powerful system, and I'm so excited now to be able to stretch it statewide across the state of Georgia with this radio program because there's so much that happens in Atlanta between now and the end of March that you as a listener really can have control over and you can really shape, but you need to be educated about it. And then you need to be motivated, and then you need to be activated when is necessary. There's going to be gun legislation coming forward in the state legislature. There's going to be health care reform coming forward in the state legislature. There's going to be school choice reform coming forward in the state legislature. There may be a film tax credit issue. We will get into the film tax credit issue. There's all sorts of stuff that's going to come up. And you have the opportunity to be engaged or not. You can just listen to me. You can sit in your car or at your office, and you can yell at the radio that you agree with me or disagree with me. You can pick up the phone and call me or you can call your state legislator. You can be engaged. Here's the thing I've learned as a political activist. I've been a political activist since 1994. I was at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, my alma mater. I helped, st I started the College Republicans there. I started the Georgia Association of College Republicans. I, I helped start redstate.com, led it into the most influential conservative uh, blog on Capitol Hill. 
a landing page for the conservative grassroots. I left it and started the resurgent, which is my hope for it to be a landing page for conservatives around the country. And what I've learned is that members of Congress, they could not care less about you reaching out to them when you can't vote for them. But if you reach out to your member of Congress, your senator, your state representative, your state senator, your governor, your mayor, your city councilman, your board of education member, and you are a constituent, you are all that matters in their world for that moment because you are a voter. And you need to understand you have that unique power. Even among Democrats, even among Democrats, Now, you may think, well, my state representative is a Democrat. He doesn't care what I think. Oh, you would be wrong. Your state representative cares tremendously, even if he's a Democrat and you're a Republican. Or he's a Republican and you're a Democrat. You think he's not going to care what I think? You would be wrong because you, too, are a voter. And if you're a Democrat and he's a Republican, the more of you he can neutralize so that you're not bothering him, that matters. It matters to them that you're a voter and you're engaged because believe it or not, they don't have a ton of engagement with actual constituents. You go up to Atlanta today, what you're going to see in Atlanta today under the gold dome is a bunch of lobbyists in suits going around glad handing these members of the legislature as if they're their best friends. There will be some like um, um, Philip Singleton, who won a special election over in Noonan, who these lobbyists are going to be introducing themselves to him as if they're his best friend. Many of them will be stabbing him in the back later because the speaker hates his guts and wants Marcy Sackerson to run against him. She lost in the special election and they want to run her against him again. And so a lot of these lobbyists are going to be stabbing Philip Singleton in the back and, and he's going to figure it out. But they're going to be glad-handing all of them today. And you know who's not going to be there? You. You know who's not going to be there? The voters. And these lobbyists can give money and these lobbyists can write checks, but they can't vote for the member of the legislature. Ultimately, the member of the legislature knows they need you. And if you're mad at them because they're not taking a stand on the speaker or other issues, then they're going to be worried because they're going to lose your vote. And an election is coming. This is an election year. Elections matter. Elections have consequences. And if you engage with them, and I'll help you engage with them throughout this legislative session on a variety of issues, you stay tuned here. I will educate you on what's happening under the Gold Dome, tell you what's going on, help you figure out how to stop bad stuff and support good stuff. We may disagree on some issues, and that's fine, too. I got a phone number. You can call me, and we can talk about it. But I'll connect you to your legislature in a way nobody else on TV or radio or the Internet is going to be able to do. But it's on you ultimately because you're the voter. You're the one who matters. My voice doesn't matter. Your voice does because you're the one who votes for Houston Gaines if you're in Athens. You're the one who votes for Dale Washburn if you're in Macon. You're the one who votes uh, across the board in North Georgia, South Georgia. You're the one who votes for your state legislator. To begin with, you want to see what the fully functional, operational, powerful system looks like to connect you to your member of the legislature? Text the word SPEAKER to 52886. Click the link and be amazed at what you and I are going to be able to accomplish this year. Well-connected and well-respected. It's Eric Erickson, live every weekday. Oh, we have so much more. We we do need to do a deep dive into the legislature. And by the way, coming up this week, uh, got a bunch of people who are going to be swinging by the show to talk about uh, what's going on in the legislature. Just so you know, uh, right now, 3,272 of you 
in the last 15 minutes have picked up your phone and texted the word speaker to 52886. Uh, that's generated 22,474 messages. Uh, 22,489 messages. 3,272 of you have engaged. Uh, Curtis, David, Lisa, Timothy, Jeremiah, Nancy, Agnes, Megan, Christopher, Lawrence, George, Michelle, Paul, Sarah, Adrian, Charla, Karen, Scott. They're all pouring in across the state of Georgia. Uh, which is which is what you got to have. Reach out to your state legislature and listen. This system, I, I will be using this throughout the state legislative session. Stick around here, be engaged here, um, so that you can make a difference with the state legislature. You can have them. Um, you you can have them connected to you, and they will know that you are a voter and you mean business. Well, we got a problem for the Democrats in Georgia. They can't come up with anyone to run against Kelly Leffler. That, that, that's a real problem. You know, there was a group out of South Georgia that pushed out a survey saying they want Doug Collins to run against Kelly Leffler and that he would win. Doug Collins isn't going to run against Kelly Leffler. She's still an unknown, Kelly Leffler is, and there are some conservatives who continue to be skeptical of her. But a lot of conservatives are giving her the benefit of the doubt. I, I saw the other day on, on Instagram, she went and bought a Kia to drive around the state in. That's not her daily car. It's going to be the, the car that she uses, though, to drive around the state of Georgia as a member of the Senate. It's made in Georgia. She went to what West Point and bought a Kia. Uh, buy in Georgia, buy in local, even in her vehicle selection. She, You know what she should do? She should, go to, she should go to Savannah and she should get a Gulfstream. Talk about being made in Georgia. Get a Gulfstream and let me fly around the state of Georgia in it. I, I, I'm totally down for our, our newest senator putting me in a Gulfstream or the rest of you. If y'all want to get me a NetJet subscription, y'all know the number of times I've been yelled at in the airport. I've been recognized from TV and radio. It really is crazy. I was literally peeing in the Atlanta airport one time and a guy started yelling at me for not supporting the president in 2016. It was insane. Uh, my boss said I should have turned around with him. I've also had somebody yell at me in a uh, at a urinal in the bathroom in a Chick-fil-A on Windy Hill Road in, in Atlanta because he didn't like something I had said on the radio. Hey, hey, people, just come on. I'm trying to use the bathroom. It's bizarre. That's why I'm all about getting a NetJet subscription one day so I can fly private and never interact with the, the people again because people are stupid, you know. <laughs> In any event, we have other stuff we need to do. But I do want to spend some time when we come back. The Democrats have a real problem in Georgia. Teresa Tomlinson has just let go of several staffers. And behind the scenes, the Democrats are starting to realize the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee has picked preferred candidates in a dozen states. And in Georgia, they have no idea who to pick because there isn't a candidate in Georgia they can rally around, and now it's becoming a free-for-all against Leffler. It's a real problem. We should laugh about it. Hello there. Welcome. It is 35 after the hour. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Do you know I've been giving you the call-in number all morning long, and... Not only has no one called, but the phone line's never opened, and I re- my my call screener is still hog hunting. He will be back tomorrow, apparently. I assume he'll be back tomorrow. No one's heard from him since he went down to, to he goes to some place in South Georgia, North Florida, uh, right south of Thomasville, 
to to kill hogs, and no one's heard from him since. I'm assuming he's a, there's no cell service down there. Uh, he will allegedly be back tomorrow, and I'll be able to actually take your phone calls tomorrow. Uh, we've actually got a bunch of people who are lined up to come on the show later this week to give us a rundown of the state legislative session, what to expect, what to watch, what bills they're watching, stuff like that. Uh, what I want you to watch for right now, interestingly enough, is the problem the Democrats are having in Georgia. So if you weren't here last week, or if you you missed the segment, Mason-Dixon Polling is a very good polling firm that has a history of uh, very good polling within the South. And they have polled Georgia, and the Mason-Dixon Polling finds that Donald Trump beats every single Democrat with over 50% of the vote in Georgia. He's seven points ahead of, of Joe Biden in Georgia. It's Trump 51 he is nine points ahead of Pete Buttigieg. He's like 53 points ahead. He is 10 points ahead of Bernie Sanders. And he's 13 points ahead of Elizabeth Warren in Georgia. In every single scenario, the president of the United States is above 50%. That's not good for the Democrats who told us that Georgia was going to be a swing state. See, part of the problem, and this this is me, this is my broken record um, moment here, my broken record diatribe, if you will. Part of the problem here is that Democrats believe mythology. Now, it's not just a Democratic problem. Just to be fair here, it's not just the Democrats. Republicans and Democrats alike tend to believe mythologies that make themselves look good and help them sleep well at night. Everyone wants to sleep well at night. If you're listening right now, you 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 know you want a good night's sleep. There are people who turn to drugs or turn to alcohol because they can't turn their brain off at night and they need to sleep. Some people get a therapist. Some people, uh, some people get a therapist and drugs, legal drugs. Some people illegal drugs. Everybody wants to be able to turn their brain off. Some people can't turn their brain off. I, I tell you, I have the hardest time turning my brain off. My, my brain is a, a, a constant spinning wheel. Uh, and it is, it's, I just, I want to sleep. And there are some people who want to sleep so bad and want a good night's sleep that they tell themselves, you know, my cure for good night's sleep, but in all honesty, um, you're going to think I'm crazy when I say this. I was actually having this discussion with a friend of mine the other day who, who's going through some, some personal turmoil and you want a good night's sleep, pray hard, groan. You're praying so hard. I, I I heard this story years ago of John Paul II. He, I realize I'm I'm he's off on a tangent. He's off on a tangent. I, I read the story years ago. Now I, I'm Presbyterian, but but I appreciate my Catholic brothers and sisters. Uh, I, I'm I heard a story years ago about John Paul II, who every morning would go into a room and there was a world map, and he would begin to pray for the people he knew in those countries and his prayer could last more than an hour. And the people around him said it would begin with words you could understand. And by the time it was over, just groans and sighs, guttural sounds that the human ear could not comprehend. And he was just in a zone of praying hard. And I got to tell you, uh, I was I was going through some hard times a while back, and I just I was waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, and I thought I, I can't go back to sleep. I got to pray, and 
I did. And it was the only thing that could help me turn my brain off enough to go back to sleep. Just getting on my knees. And, and you know, I would do it at it, 2 o'clock in the morning. Everybody in the house is asleep. And I'm going into a closet and just getting down on my knees and just praying like the world would come apart if I did not pray. And there was something cathartic about it. And, and it, it, it calmed me in a way that other things didn't. And a lot of times there would be no answer. And I had to force myself to do it, realizing the feeling like God was ignoring me. Or maybe he wasn't real and he wasn't there and I was just doing this. And then he answered. And I just, I, I'm, I, I've gotten into that habit now. And, and I've gotten very rote with how I pray. I realized, man, this is a complete tangent from, from where I was headed. We'll get back to my point. Um, but uh, I've gotten very rote in how I pray. And I, the, the phraseology that I, I almost chant is actually a friend of mine who's a rabbi gave me some of the language that I use just to get my mind focused on prayer. Because, you know, if, if, you, if you pray, oftentimes your prayers get very rote. You lay down, you say the same thing every night. You say it in the same way. You're, you're laying in bed. And, you know, the way I am now, if I want to fall asleep, I can't fall asleep until I've said a prayer. Uh, it's very Pavlov's. I am Pavlov's prayer dog. Uh, I, I I pray I can go to sleep. If I don't, I can't go to sleep. And I just, I, I got into the habit of just to begin the prayer, blessed are you, O Lord, the King of all creation. You hold the universe in the palm of your hand. You bring bread from heaven and water from rocks. You raise me from the dust of the earth. You stitch me together in my mother's womb. And then I can pray. And then I can sleep. Try it. You should try it. Complete tangent. Let's move back to where we were. <laughs> there are some people, though, who don't do that. There are people who it's it's alcohol, it's drugs, it's, it's, it's sleeping aids, or it's mythology. It's the things they tell them so that they can sleep well at night. In Georgia right now, the Democrats to sleep well at night are trying to tell themselves that they did not misread Stacey Abrams' election and that what is real is that Georgia is trending their way, that demography is destiny, and that the state is on the verge of upheaval. And if they just pour a little more money in, they'll grab it, they'll snag it, they'll have it. But there's a problem for the Democrats. They did misread Stacey Abrams' election. Because Stacey Abrams' election was not about her policies, it was about her personality. She was the first black candidate to run for governor of the state of Georgia in quite some time and have a credible showing. And she galvanized a lot of black voters. It was not her progressivism. And there are a lot of Democrats out there today who, if you ask them privately, will tell you it wasn't her progressivism. But at the activist level, at the base level, at the root of the Democratic Party, there are a lot of people who have decided that the reason Stacey Abrams won in Georgia is because she went to the left. All these other people went to the right. All these other people, the Michelle Nunns of the world, the Jason Carters of the world, the Roy Barnes of the world, the Mark Taylors of the world, the Kathy Cox of the world, they all, they all ran as conservative blue dog Democrats. 
And Stacey Abrams, she ran as an unapologetic conservative, and she was not going to be one of those people who ran as a progressive in the primary and then tour the right in the general. She's going to tell people what she believed. And, you know, I asked her that question. Uh, I interviewed Stacey Abrams. Hers was one of the best interviews I've conducted in the last couple of years. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal person to interview. Really nice, very witty, very self-deprecating. Whether I agree with her or not on policy, she was super. She was fun to interview. I totally enjoyed the interview with her. And I asked her, I said, a lot of Democrats behind the scenes are nervous because most Democrats in this state, they run as progressives to get the nomination of the Democratic Party, and then they run back to the center as fast as they can. And you are saying that is not something you're going to do. And to her credit, she didn't do it. And she told me she is who she is. She's not going to lie to people and tell them she's someone else. And she's not going to take positions that she has to walk back when she firmly believes her positions are good for people. Instead, what she's going to do is she's going to explain to people why her values and why her positions are good for them. And whether you like Stacey Abrams or not, she did exactly what she said she was going to do. She was an honest politician. She honestly is a progressive and she honestly campaigned as a progressive and she honestly got close, but it didn't work out for her. She didn't win. Uh, there, there's a lot of fiction out there on the Democratic side, the mythology and all that. But the reality of the matter is that Stacey Abrams did get close, but she didn't get close by being a progressive. And there are a lot of progressives in Georgia who want you to believe that Stacey Abrams got close because she was a progressive. And that's not actually true. She got close because she was a dynamic black female candidate at a time when Georgia Democrats had been putting up a bunch of uh, descendants of the old white guys who had been in Georgia politics. The Sam Nunn's Michelle Nunn's, the Jim Carter's Jason Carter's here comes a unique candidate from the Democratic Party who happens to be black and voters on the Democratic Party resonated with her at a time that they were turned off by Donald Trump in the suburbs and those suburban voters said hey we'll go with the fresh face not the guy who sounds like he's going to be Donald Trump light it turns out Brian Kemp won and has established himself as not Donald Trump light but as his own man and now those voters who went for Stacey Abrams in the suburbs are like holy cow I like this guy the Democrats have a problem now. To get to sleep at night, they've been telling themselves Georgia's moving left. And then here comes Mason Dixon, a highly credible pollster with a very good track record of polling in the state of Georgia. And it turns out that no matter what Democrat you put up against Donald Trump, Donald Trump gets at least 51% of the vote. What on earth? And unlike the AJC polling that had Brian Kemp at 54% with an oversampling of upper-income white people, this poll actually has a balance representative of who Georgia voters are. Their sample size is good, and the types of voters that they sample was good. And Donald Trump leads with 51% of the vote? That's impressive. And now you've got a situation where they can't find a quality candidate to go against David Perdue. And what, what was the Democratic line on, on Kelly Leffler? We need to wait to see who, who Brian Kemp picks. We need to wait. We need to wait. We're, whoever our candidate is, we're going to rally behind a candidate, and that candidate is going to be picked based on who Brian Kemp picks. So Brian Kemp picks Kelly Leffler. It's been six weeks, and the Democrats can't find a candidate to go against her. It's been six weeks and the Democrats in the state of Georgia can't find anyone. So now the gates are opening 
Matt Lieberman, who all the Democrats tried to stop from running, he got in. He's raised, this is Joe Lieberman's son, Matt Lieberman raised $700,000. Matt Lieberman, running against Kelly Leffler, raised more money than Teresa Tomlinson, who's been in the race forever, raised in her race against David Perdue. I think Lieberman has more cash on hand than Teresa Tomlinson, who's been fundraising nonstop. She's now lost three campaign staffers. But the Democrats aren't happy with Matt Lieberman. They don't think he can actually win. So Ed Tarver, a former U.S. attorney, he's entering the race. There are signs that Ralph Warnock is entering the race. You know who Ralph Warnock is, don't you? He's the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, a, a progressive Democratic ally. Interestingly enough, we've got Martin Luther King Jr. weekend coming up, and Kelly Leffler is going to be at Ebenezer Baptist Church because Johnny Isaacson always went to Ebenezer Baptist Church, and so Kelly Leffler is going to go to Ebenezer Baptist Church because Johnny Isaacson did. And Ralph Warnock's going to be the preacher who preaches the sermon who may run against her, and she's still going. Good for her. She should be commended. And we'll see if he actually does it. And I'm hearing others are starting to, starting to think they're going to run. The Democrats were a Nikema, what is her name? Nikema Williams, Nikemia Williams. She's a state legislator. She's also the chairwoman of the Democratic Party here in Georgia. She hasn't been able to contain the field. She hasn't been able to pick one. And, you know, Chuck Schumer's been flying these Democrats up to Washington, trying to get them on the same page. Chuck Schumer has played an active role in trying to find a credible candidate in Georgia, and he hadn't been able to find any. Because Georgia is not the swing state Democrats in Georgia told everyone it was. And do you know who that's bad news for, actually? That's actually bad news for Stacey Abrams. It's bad news for Stacey Abrams because Abrams needs them to put money into Georgia in 2020. Abrams needs them to put money in Georgia in 2020 to continue a buildup for her 2022 rematch against Kemp. And it looks more and more like they're not going to do it because they can't find good candidates to challenge Leffler and Purdue. What did John Ossoff do in the special election of the 6th? He had a war chest of $30 million and he wasted it. Are the Democrats really going to reinvest in John Ossoff after he blew $30 million to lose a special election seat. And right now, I would say that Ossoff is the front runner for the Democrats against David Perdue. He's raising money hand over fist. He's already got name ID. Sarah Riggs Amico, I don't know that she can stay in the race. I don't. I, I, nobody hears from her anymore. Teresa Tomlinson's laying off staff. Parting amicably with, with her staffers. That, that's the phrase being used. But is it really? The Democrats have a real problem in Georgia. Uh, they, they've been puffing themselves up on the narrow loss of Stacey Abrams to Brian Kemp, and she's still lost. She never even got into a runoff. Many of them wanted to misread, willfully wanted to misread the warning signs so they could sleep well at night. They have poured resources into this state to try to shift it to the Democrats. They have looked at the demography of Georgia and said, any day now, we're going to be a Democratic state. Hallelujah. And it's not working out for them. And you know what? You, this is this is the, the funny, 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 funny part of it. I know people in the Democratic Party who told me in 2018, Brian Kemp was the guy that they wanted because he would be the easiest guy to beat. 
Brian Kemp. If they had Casey Cagle, Casey Cagle, those suburban voters, they would go with Casey Cagle because he was a known stable quantity. They wanted Brian Kemp, and they got Brian Kemp. And Brian Kemp's been beating them ever since. As both sides target Georgia for 2020, Eric gives you the news you need from a Georgia perspective. Why, hello there. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number, but don't actually call because the call screener's Hall Cunning. He'll be back tomorrow, or so I'm told, unless he has so much fun down there, he decides not to not to stick around. All right, we, we still we need to, to dive into what's happening with the state legislature. Uh, and we've also got impeachment afoot, but I, I want to spend just a moment on a story out of South Georgia. Uh, this comes from WMTV. Um, actually, it comes from WCTV, which is a, an affiliate. Where is WCTV? Down in Thomasville, listen to you. Jim knows. I should ask you to begin with WCTV in Thomasville, Georgia. A Thomasville church has partnered with a national nonprofit organization to pay off over a million dollars in medical debt in seven South Georgia counties. Victory Fellowship Church has partnered with RIP Medical Debt to wipe out outstanding medical balances for 735 people in Thomas, Grady, Brooks, Mitchell, Cook, and Colquitt counties in Georgia and in Jefferson County, Florida. The total amount of debt paid off was $1,138,383.98. We wanted to give our community a year-end Christmas gift, but we were amazed that a $10,000 donation could relieve so much medical debt. This is a real game-changer for many people, said the lead pastor, uh, Jamie Nunnally. We chose these counties because we have church members who live in them, and these are more rural areas that tend to have a higher incidence of low household income. We love the fact that RIP medical debt targets people who simply cannot afford to pay their debt, especially veterans. The debt removal of families isn't the first of its kind in Georgia. Earlier this year, Atlanta Hawk star Trey Young partnered with RIP Medical Debt to pay off more than a million dollars for families in the Atlanta area. That's fantastic. You, you know, I, I listen, I, I, get back on my soapbox after, after the prayer thing, and, and this isn't tangential. It's directly related. You, you know, what, what, is the, what is religion? Taking care of the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the refugees. And we in this country, because of politics these days, people are fighting over what is and isn't a refugee and what should and shouldn't you do. Um, but taking care of people in your community as a church is just one of the things that you can do to stand out. You, you know, in the early days of Christendom, Christians were easily targeted for persecution because they did not look like the rest of the culture. The rest of the culture was going to the gladiatorial games and was rushing to sue. Well, you know, one of the things that stood out in the Roman Empire was people were sue crazy. I mean, it was actually a thing in Rome. You sued someone. Anybody slight you, you sue. And you go handle it in court. And the Christians didn't sue. That, that's one of the, the, the New Testament admonitions of, of not to sue. And, and why was it? It was because in Roman culture, the culture was sue crazy. Everyone sued. It was what they did as a society to each other. And it was the, the 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 bigger person, the more powerful person suing the weak people. Or the weak people who wanted to be the, the, the strong person would sue the strong person and make a show of it. It was a spectacle. People would go to court for entertainment, much like we turn on Judge Judy for entertainment. 
That's what people did. And and so in the New Testament, the, there's the admonition not to sue. And it's, it's, it's you stand out from culture. And a lot of churches these days around the country, even here in Georgia, there are a lot of cultures who look no different than the world around them. That they, they don't actually stand out. They don't take care of the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the refugees. Uh, to the extent they do, they take care of those in their church, which they should. And not enough churches, frankly, do that. There are not enough churches that are really committed to, to shepherding the people in their congregations through hard times. And then there's the world around them. You know, we're, we're real blessed here in Macon. We go to a church, and, and one of our side ministries is this uh, Strong Tower Fellowship here in Macon. Uh, and Strong Tower Fellowship is a church that that was a PCA church. Uh, we actually used to go to it. It was Vineville Presbyterian Church, and now it's a ministry in, in the inner city, uh, revitalizing homes and helping people in the neighborhood. And that's the sort of thing that churches need to do. So God bless these people in Thomasville, paying off medical debt for the people around them, really standing out from the world around them. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. A little bit of housekeeping uh, that you need to know about. Uh, There is an outstanding flash flood warning in Coweta, Fayette, Meriwether, Pike, Spalding, and Troop counties right now. in uh, west central Georgia, there is also one in flash flood warning, not watch, but a warning in Green, Oglethorpe, Tolliver, and Wilkes counties. Uh, roads, I'm told, around the Lake Oconee area are a mess right now. There is still rain. Uh, there's actually a thunderstorm in South Bibb County, the Rutland area. If you're listening on WMAC in Macon, uh, there is a, a strong pocket of thunderstorms. North of Warner Robins, uh, in the the um, uh, the Byron area, Centerville area, south of Macon, you've got a strong storm. And then up in North Georgia, uh, WCHM up in Clarksville, you are in the rain still, and it is it's going to be trending away from you, but you still got a little ways to go, given the way the storm is is uh, passing. And then in Athens, you are almost out of the rain. It looks like Watkinsville is starting to dry out. Uh, got a little more sprinkle coming into Watkinsville and then it's going to dry out there. Rome is drying out and Dalton is drying out. Uh, if you're in Jasper though, uh, buckle down, you got some heavy rain coming your way here in the next 15 minutes and then you're going to be done with it uh over in the carroll county area you've got more rain that's going you're dried out right now but you got more rain coming when you get down to south georgia things are mostly dry let me let me zoom out here we got some some rain in the sylvester area and the albany area uh camilla and moultrie have some rain it's headed towards Tifton. Uh, if you're Adel, Quitman, Valdost, our affiliates down there, uh, Thomasville, Bainbridge, over to Waycross, you're largely dried out. You don't have anything to worry about. It is all mostly North Georgia right now, and it's mostly now along the South Carolina line. Uh, and then up in North Georgia, where South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia all are, it is a mess up there. Uh, Clarksville is having to deal with that. I, I, I wanted to do this weather update for you because there really is a ton of rain that is out there, a ton of rain. Uh, it is in the um, it is in the North Georgia mountains right now. Gainesville, you're going to be in it for probably another hour. 
um, and you, we've got these flash flood warnings. And again, these are warnings. These are not watches, and that's why I want to focus on them, uh, because there is active flooding in these areas. Uh, there are some roads that are impassable. I've gotten some messages from people who are listeners uh, in the Greensboro area, in the Washington, Georgia area, about uh, the situation there. Uh, listening to WGAU up in, in Athens right now, our flagship, saying that uh, it's just a mess over there. And I looked, and sure enough, we do have flash flood warnings for those counties. Uh, for Greene County, Oglethorpe County, Tolliver County, and Wilkes County, uh, you got it for another four hours. In Coweta, Fayette, uh, Merriweather, Pike, Spalding, and Troop County, you've got it for another three hours, these flash flood warnings. Be careful if you are on the roads around these creeks and rivers in these areas of the state of Georgia because it is still a mess from all this rain. More rain is expected to move into the area again tomorrow as well. Uh, so stick with your station here that you listen to me on. We will keep you up to date. We will keep you dry. We will keep you safe, as safe as we can. Those storms wrecked havoc all weekend long through Georgia. Uh, the further south you went, the better off you were. My sister actually flew in, uh, stayed with us on Saturday just to visit for a while. Had to go down to Tifton. Uh, she works for a company company that does work with nursing homes down there had to go to Thomasville and to Tifton and to Valdosta and she hasn't gotten any rain and we were without power she left Friday night probably 6 30 uh, and then by seven o'clock our power was out and it stayed out until Sunday morning it's just a mess a uh, really really messy bad storms lots of trees down in Harrelson County the First Presbyterian Church, I believe it was, had its roof ripped off. Not tornadoes, just wind there. The wind was so strong. But in any event, uh, I, I've done my duty for, for king and country here with this, and now I want to move on to other stuff. I want to do a deep dive into the state legislature. Uh, if you want a chance to check out the Activist uh, Center for my radio listeners, Text the word speaker to 52886 and you can see it in action. You'll be impressed with it. We'll be using it throughout the legislative session uh, to reach out to legislators on things. One of the big issues in the state legislature that I'm actually, I, I want to explain to you why I, I hope it's not going to be a big issue, is the film tax credit. Um, hang on. I'm going to, I, I hope you're listening right now. Uh, totally unprofessional of me. I just texted a friend who, who is invested in this issue and I hope he's listening to me right now. Uh, I, I want to talk about the film tax credit issue because it is going to become a big deal. If you haven't heard, and I spent some time on it last week, an audit by the state came out and said, essentially the film tax credit in Georgia is terribly mismanaged. The film tax credit in Georgia, uh, it has major overruns. We're given uh, films and television studios uh, tax credits for work that's not even done in the state of Georgia. Because it's not capped, it's almost $900 million in, in film tax credits now, representing uh, 3% of the state budget at a time that revenue is soft. A lot of people are pointing to the film tax credit saying that's why revenue is soft. Uh, the audit from the state of Georgia as well says that the multiplier being used, uh, essentially they, they say, oh, we got this much business in the state. You multiply it out and it says it, it, that much business is creating this many jobs, this much economic revenue, this much taxation for the state. And the state auditor says that the number is completely overinflated. It's not nearly as much as people are claiming uh, and that the, the program is badly mismanaged. And there's a lot of truth to all of this. One of the problems that members of the state legislature want to look to is, is that it, there's not a timeline on the use of the credits. 
A company can get a credit and hold on to it for five or six years. They can sell it to a company that is not in film industry but owes taxes to the state. So, for example, if you have a million-dollar tax credit because your company did did work in Georgia. By the way, the way the film tax credit is, is, is worked, just so you understand, you spend, uh, and I'm listen, I, I went to law school, so math is not my strong suit. Just, just understand that. You, you get a 30% tax credit in the state of Georgia. So you do $10 million worth of work in the state of Georgia, you get a $3 million tax credit. Uh, it's, it's not the taxes generated that cause you the credit. It's the amount of work done in the state. You've done uh, $10 million work, worth of work in the state because you're Disney and you filmed Avengers here. And you get a $3 million tax credit based on the money you poured into the state. And you're not a Georgia company, so you actually don't owe a lot of taxes to the state of Georgia. So you hold on to that $3 million tax credit. And then a Georgia company has a banner year and owes the state of Georgia $3 million. Well, that company goes to Disney and says, you're not doing it. So why don't I pay you a million dollars for your $3 million tax credit? And Disney says, well, we're never going to use it because we're not a Georgia company. So sure, we'll take your million dollars now. So the company pays a million dollars to Disney and gets Disney's $3 million tax credit and applies that to its tax bill. So the state of Georgia never gets $3 million in revenue. Disney gets a million dollars. And that's that's the film tax credit. Now, a buddy of mine from Florida is listening. You're doing this again. Well, here's my point, Brent. Here, here's here's why I'm bringing this up. First, I'm explaining it to listeners who weren't here last week like you were to get their understanding of the film tax credit. And now to make this point, the legislature does not need to engage the issue this year. I've decided. And I realize that there are well-meaning people. Lindsay Tippins, who's in the state Senate thinks that, that something needs to be done. We've got an audit out that something needs to be done. We've got an independent economic commission study from uh, Kennesaw state showing something needs to be done. But all of this news came out within two weeks of the legislature meeting. Our legislature is a part-time legislature, and they got plenty of other things that they need to do. And my thinking is that why not study it this year and come up with a workable solution and deal with it next year in next year's state legislative session so everybody knows it's coming, nobody is caught off guard, and a deal can be reached. Maybe, why don't we deal with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act at the same time and see if we can get a state-level RIFRA here in Georgia and tie it to the film tax credit. We'll give you what you want if you give us what we want. Do something creative like that. But I just say, the more I think about it, the more I think if Georgia were to do something now, it would be reactive to these reports. And the, the purpose of all legislatures is to be reactive when drafting laws. Uh, proactive legislation is actually a terrible idea philosophically. And the reason proactive legislation philosophically is a bad idea is because you're trying to come up with, with worst-case scenarios and draft legislation to respond to what could potentially happen, to hypotheticals that may never come. And what happens is when you write proactive legislation, you inevitably think of things that aren't going to happen, and people begin to do 
do those things because you didn't contemplate them in drafting your proactive legislation. So you write reactive legislation. But the problem is if you react too soon after news comes out, sometimes you can overplay your hand and you can do damage. And I'm afraid, given some of the sentiments that are circulating under the gold dome right now with the film tax credit in Georgia, the state legislature would be overplayed in its hand and potentially put at risk the film industry in the state of Georgia uh, because everyone kind of agrees now, by and large, they need to curtail it. Everyone kind of agrees there may need to be a cap. There is some sentiment among some members of the legislature that perhaps they should prohibit transfers of the credit. But there's no consensus right now. And it seems like there could be some bipartisan consensus on this issue that, I mean, there isn't a member of the state legislature that wants to get rid of the film tax credit. But there are about 5 million competing ideas right now because everyone's just reacting to the immediate news. And by the way, there's still one more report to come out. You got the state auditor, it's coming out. You got the Georgia Tech one, it hasn't come out. You got Kennesaw State, it has come out. So we're going to be forming legislation right now, reacting to reports that we have, and then another report's going to come out. And oh my gosh, we got to react to it as well. Let's 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 shake up the legislation. We're already shaken up. Just wait a year. Wait a year. Nothing's going to change. I mean, you, you you pass the law now. It's it's in the best case scenario not going to go to, into effect until July first. Probably would not go into effect until January first next year anyway because it's a tax law. So it wouldn't go into effect until next year anyway. So wait until next year. Put it off one year. Assess calmly all the information. Get the film film industry on involved. Get the TV industry involved. Get these major studios involved. Get the conservatives involved. Get the fiscal tax reformer guys involved. The problem, frankly, is there's so much distrust in the House with David Ralston and and some of his friends and family members who are lobbyists. There are a lot of people in the Senate who don't trust the House because of that situation, and they're afraid that Ralston wants to stack the deck. He's already come out and says he doesn't want to do anything to the film tax credit, even though there's a lot that needs to be done. And even in this is the big thing. This is the big thing. People in the TV and film industry in Georgia are willing to compromise on the issue because even a lot of them realize it is a little bit absurd that even California has a cap on the film tax credit. So wait and breathe. And, you know, this. so just so you understand philosophically, let's step away from the film tax credit as, as the big issue. Philosophically, this is this is me. I am really opposed at the federal level, the state level, across the board to legislatures reacting so quickly to things. For example, and I, I again, I'm stepping completely away from films. I'm not trying to connect the two because I know it's a sensitive issue. But shootings, mass shootings. Lately in this country, if there's a mass shooting, the conversation immediately within moments of the shooting, particularly on social media, runs immediately to legislation. And inevitably what happens is that we find out that the shooter either bought the gun illegally and no law would have stopped him from getting it, or there was a legal means by which the gun was acquired and it came into the possession of the shooter. And you couldn't do a law, you couldn't pass a law to stop that. You know, in Virginia, I've been treading cautiously on some of the gun reform measures in Virginia. Some of the things the governor wants there, there are some worst case scenarios there. Uh, and some of them look like they may now be able to pass. They're, they're trying to link them up. Um, there are huge protests in Virginia on gun rights. Uh, I think all but 
but 10 of the counties in Virginia have now declared themselves sanctuary counties or sanctuary cities for guns. Uh, they're being reactive in Virginia. But particularly voices on Twitter, voices on social media, members of Congress, when there's a shooting, they become very reactive and they rush out gun control legislation that it turns out would not actually affect in any way, shape, or form the situation. And I don't think the legislature should be that reactive. They need to assess. They need to be calm. They need to look and see what can we do to stop the situation. After the Las Vegas shooting, for example, uh, the president himself uh, issued an executive order repealing the ATF's authorization of bump stocks. And a lot of my conservative friends are upset with him for doing it. Um, but Congress never actually acted on the issue. The president himself acted on the issue. Congress got bogged down in the details, and that's not a bad thing. You know, gridlock in Washington is the same way gridlock in Georgia should be. It's a feature, not a bug. Slowing things down so that you can reasonably react as opposed to rushing through emotionally and reacting isn't a bad thing. In Georgia, we got a film tax credit system that has clearly run amok and has major problems, and the auditors are showing it, and the outside business and economic experts are showing it. But let's not rush a fix and make the situation worse. Let's take our time and see if we can fix it. Honest news and conservative views. Never separated from the truth. It's the Eric Erickson Show. You know, I, I, I feel as, as someone whose job is to entertain you, I'm supposed to give you what you want. Although sometimes I think it is my job to to spare you from what you think you want. But, oh, who am I to, to say? It, it is the big news of the day. We, we have reports. Here we go. This is from the Telegraph. Not the Macon Telegraph. The London Telegraph. The Duke of Cambridge and the Duke of Sussex, that would be William and Harry, have joined forces to deny reports of bullying. Buckingham Palace strongly denied a claim in the London Times that the Duke of Sussex felt, quote, pushed away by what he saw as a bullying attitude from the Duke of Cambridge, end quote. A rare statement issued on behalf of both brothers just hours before a family summit at Sandringham cited their many campaigns on mental health. It said despite clear denials, a false story ran in a UK newspaper today speculating about the relationship between the Dukes of Sussex and Cambridge. For brothers who care so deeply about the issues surrounding mental health, the use of inflammatory language in this way is offensive and potentially harmful. The brothers launched the Heads Together Mental Health campaign masterminded by the Duchess of Cambridge in 2017. Prince Harry recently worked with Oprah Winfrey on a forthcoming Apple TV Plus documentary series about mental health, while the Cambridge's Royal Foundation has commissioned a task force on cyberbullying. As the Sussex's future hung in the balance, an insider told the Times the couple felt tethered by their responsibilities. The source said of Megan, she wants to leave. She thinks it's not working for me. He is under intense pressure to choose. It is sad. He loves the queen. He loves the country. He loves the military. I think it will genuinely break his heart to leave. I don't think that's what he really wants. I think they want some halfway house. Prince Harry is said to be heartbroken by the thought of having to sever links to his family altogether. As the queen, the Prince of Wales, and Prince William and Harry prepared to come face-to-face -face for a crisis summit at Sandringham. The Duke of Edinburgh was spotted in public for the first time since he left hospital, being driven away from the Norfolk estate. 
Although he now lives at Sandringham, he's not expected to take part in the talks. As her husband left home for the showdown, the Duchess of Cambridge was pictured driving across London on a school run. The family meeting marks the first time William and Harry will have seen each other since the Duke and Duchess of Sussex made their bombshell announcement that they plan to step back from their royal duties, live apart, live part of the year in North America, and become financially independent. It is expected to take place at the Long Library, a room that looks out on the gardens and will be familiar to both Prince William and Harry as the place they used to have high tea with their mother, Princess Diana, and their royal cousins. Up for discussion will be the Sussex tax affairs, along with their royal titles, Metropolitan Police bodyguards, and Frogmore Cottage, their Windsor home. Aides are understood to have drawn up a potential blueprint for Harry and Meghan's new life in North America, but with complicated issues still to be resolved, the Queen's desire for swift resolution is not guaranteed. While the 93-year-old monarch wants the situation to be sorted out by close of play tomorrow, sources close to the Sussex say they are not going to quickly sign off their future and their lives. The relationship between Harry and William has been under the spotlight as the crisis unfolded with friends suggesting the rift between them was much wider than previously thought. Tom Bradby, the ITV journalist and friend of both, made clear the relationship became toxic a long time ago. Harry and Meghan find some other members of the family, with the exception of the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh, jealous and at times unfriendly. The fallout began at the time of the wedding. Really damaging things were said and done, and the atmosphere soured, and no wounds have healed. Oh my goodness, the drama, the drama. Why do any of us care? We seem prone to care about the royals, and I can't fathom, but I've done my bit for all of you and brought you up to speed on what's happening. Now we can move on. Uh, Y'all, it has come to this. It is 35 after the hour. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. And I am being asked by Anna in Greensboro to apologize. Anna in Greensboro says, Mr. Erickson, I'm a fan of yours, but I believe you are being too flippant with the royal family. This is a situation that shows younger generations lacking respect for older generations and your flippant attitude towards it and your thinking it is irrelevant to us matters deeply. In fact, it shows growing generational divides across countries and is something that we see in this country with respect for the elderly. These individuals have shown great disrespect to the queen, their 93-year-old grandmother, and they should be ashamed, and we should be with her. Respectfully, Anna from Greensboro. If I could wrap up the show, I'd wrap it up right there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I just lost a listener. I'm sorry. Listen, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know how old Anna is. I really, I, I have no idea. And I'm, I, I didn't mean to be flippant. And I promise. I didn't mean it. I was just reading a freaking news story from the Telegraph in London. I subscribe 
just for you guys to these British newspapers so I can read you behind the paywall what they're saying. All I did was do that. All I did. <sighs> I'm sorry, Anna. I didn't mean to disrespect the the royal family. I, I'm, I thought we fought a war and threw some tea in a harbor so that I would not have to care about the royal family. But I, I am I am admonished by my listeners that in fact we should care about the royal family. So so I will. You know what else I care about? I care about impeachment. Remember all of the stories. All of the stories about how Nancy Pelosi is a strategic genius. Genius. Oh, yeah. My, my buddy Brent says two wars, 1776 and 1812. That's true. We won them both. Nancy Pelosi is a strategic genius. She dragged out the articles of impeachment. And how did she do that? Nancy Pelosi dragged out the articles of impeachment. And in doing so, she took the advice of someone on CNN, a John Dean, the old Nixon guy who has never met any scandal he didn't think was worse than Watergate. And uh, Nancy Pelosi decided that she loved the idea and she wouldn't hand over the articles of impeachment, delaying the actual impeachment of the president of the United States. And the media said, she's a genius. This is genius. Build the pressure on the Republicans. And you know what it did? It allowed Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans to get so frustrated that they united on a plan to dismiss the articles of impeachment, to change the rules of the Senate in midterm to dismiss the articles of impeachment. They were planning on doing that. And so Nancy had to cave. And now listen to the discussion this is from kcdc uh casey hunt on msnbc normally 22 days out from a caucus we'd all be there yep. freezing like ali uh is freezing but instead we we're focused here in washington how is that that calculus i mean because elizabeth warren bernie sanders cory booker amy klobuchar did i miss anybody they're all going to be stuck on the senate floor and not in iowa well that's one of the reasons why i really don't understand what the speaker did because she delayed this timeline which allowed this to fall right at this point in time so there was i mean i didn't float this but some people have argued that maybe pelosi was doing this to boost joe biden i have no idea but it really it just goes again to the why did the speaker delay this? Because now this does cause a real problem for a lot of Democrats who are in the Senate and will be sort of tied to the Senate chamber. Well, is that the strategy, Alexi? Help Joe Biden? That's what Kevin McCarthy said on Fox News, was that <laughs> Pelosi was doing this to prevent Bernie Sanders from becoming the nominee by, you know, killing his chances in Iowa. I don't think that she is thinking about it that, in that way. If she is, you know, she can call and correct us. But they're focused on different things. Like, yes, Washington is very much consumed by impeachment, but the senators who are running for president for the Dom Democratic nomination are spending lots of time in Iowa. The debate this Tuesday is in Iowa. I mean, the, the, the focus might be bifurcated, but there is still a focus on Iowa among the people who need to be there. The interesting thing will be whether or not someone like, you know, Senator Amy Klobuchar or any of the senators you mentioned are spending the day in Washington and then taking an evening flight to Iowa to be able to get some last-minute retail politicking time with these folks who will ultimately be deciding their fate in just a few weeks. Uh, yeah, see, this is a problem because the um, Democratic senators aren't going to be able to go to Iowa. Here's 
Politico's Jake Sherman. What did Pelosi actually accomplish here, if anything? And does she still have any cards to play before it goes over? No, she doesn't have any cards to play in my estimation. I think you probably all would agree. Um, it's tough to say that those developments were because she was holding the articles. Imagine in another scenario, she had sent the, the articles over to the Senate and John Bolton came out while the Senate trial was going on. That would appear to be a lot more of a game-changing development while the trial was going on than while she was holding the articles. So you could make an equally convincing argument that it was uh, a, a detraction, neg a, a negative development that Bolton came out while she was holding the articles. I don't know what more cards she could play. I mean, I, and I don't mean to say this in a glib way, but McConnell is right when he says the House process is done. I mean, they've impeached him. They held very lengthy and, and in their estimation, successful hearings. And now the Senate has a role to play as well. So you can, you could quibble with how the Senate's gonna, gonna conduct itself and say that they should guarantee witnesses and all sorts of things. I'll accept that, but Mitch McConnell has his votes together, so he doesn't need anything from Democrats, right. so I just don't get what else is going to happen here. Exactly. The House's process has run its course. There's nothing they can do, but here's the thing. For weeks, we were told Nancy Pelosi was a genius. We had reporters who were just gaga over the strategic genius of Nancy Pelosi, and now it's all blowing up in her face. Here, here's the Washington Post, Rachel Bain on, on George Stephanopoulos' show. Yeah, definitely. I think it's she was clearly putting a positive spin on what a lot of Democrats have privately said was a failed strategy. I mean, she and Chuck Schumer, the minority leader in the Senate, set out to, number one, try to get a commitment from McConnell on witnesses, firsthand witnesses, to have them testify in a Senate trial. She also said she wanted to see a resolution uh, uh, about, you know, how the whole proceedings would be governed. She got neither of those. And I know her team has sort of said, you know, you know, look, um, she was able to hold out. There were a bunch of news revelations that happened over the holiday break. Bolton came out and said he's willing to testify. She was holding the articles the whole time. But those things probably would have happened regardless of whether she was holding them. And in fact, there might have even been more news focused on those things uh, if everybody wasn't asking, what is Nancy Pelosi doing for the articles? So I do think there are a lot of Democrats who, while not going on the record and saying it, um, a lot of them had concern about this. Uh, and a little more from Rachel Bate from uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos. But if they decide at the end of it's going to take about two weeks for them to at go least, through opening yeah. arguments, yeah, do some questions. If they decide, if they get that fourth Republican to call in, uh, you know, Bolton or some of these firsthand witnesses, then that could mean another two to four weeks. I mean, of, of impeachment trial all throughout various caucuses in the states. That could be a big problem for Bernie Sanders, for Elizabeth Warren, who right now are in the top uh, in Iowa. Uh, I, I, hang on a second. Yeah, I want to pull this up so I have it with me so I get the dates right. Um, because I think it's important and shapes the situation here. If there's an impeachment trial in the Senate, the earliest it would start now is next week, the 20th. And it would probably stretch for two weeks. Uh, so that would be the 20th to the 31st. Under the rules of the United States Senate, an impeachment trial must meet from noon to 6 p.m. every day except Sunday, and every senator is compelled to attend. If the senators do not attend, they can be jailed by the sergeant-at-arms of the Senate. They, they have no wiggle room in this. Uh, Elizabeth Warren... Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and Michael Bennett, and Cory Booker are still in the race. Bennett obviously has no chance, and Booker really doesn't either. Uh, but Amy Klobuchar was getting some traction. Elizabeth Warren has traction. Bernie Sanders is now in the lead in Iowa. 
number two behind Joe Biden. None of them will be permitted to leave the Senate to go campaign. Again, if a Senate trial were to begin, it would begin on probably the 20th or the 21st and would run through the 31st more likely than not. Uh, The Iowa caucus is the 3rd of February. The 3rd of February. The New Hampshire primary is February 11th. The Nevada caucus for the Democrats is February 22nd. And then the South Carolina primary is February 29th. That's the calendar for February. If you have a Senate trial that drags out for three weeks, if it starts next week, you're going to miss the Iowa caucuses altogether. The the candidates will only be able to show up on Sundays or at night. They'll have a time change benefit. They could technically leave Washington, get on a plane at 7 p.m. That would be in Iowa, 6 p.m. They could fly to Iowa. They could get to Iowa by... Iowa time, 7.30-ish. They could have a rally around 9 p.m., and then they could get on a plane back to Washington. They'd have the morning. They could campaign in the morning, hit a flight, but then there's a weather delay. If there's a weather delay, that complicates it for them. It's winter time in Iowa, and the weather's not great. They could have flight delays, and the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms will arrest them if they miss the Senate trial. You've got New Hampshire comes up the next week, February 11th. If this, if the trial doesn't start until the end of January, then you're missing for certain, if you're a Democrat, you're missing the Iowa caucuses on the 3rd of February, and you're missing the New Hampshire primary on the 11th. So the advantage goes to Buttigieg, and the advantage goes to Joe Biden. The two of them get to campaign while the Senate guys are stuck. That's going to be a problem. I mean, it is. It really is. For them, it's going to be a huge problem. So then, of course, you have the situation of South Carolina is the 29th and Nevada is the 22nd. If the trial stretches for multiple weeks into February, you're missing Iowa, you're missing New Hampshire, you're missing Nevada. And you could be missing South Carolina because South Carolina and Nevada are on Saturdays. But according to the rules of the Senate, the trial has to happen on a Saturday. You, 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 the Senate's got to be in session on a Saturday to do the trial. Again, six days a week from noon to six every day. And if you don't show up, you're going to be arrested by the Senate Sergeant at Arms and you're going to be detained. So they got to do something. They, they, they've, they've got to come up with something. And, and now you've got Democrats in Washington openly speculating that, oh, my gosh, did Nancy Pelosi do this to help Joe Biden? Is she trying to rig the game for Joe Biden? They're actually having that conversation in Washington, D.C. now. Here's the thing, though. Here's, here's the thing. The reality is a lot of this is spin. For weeks, for weeks, Democrats and supposedly objective members of the media have told us that Nancy Pelosi is a strategic genius and that by being a strategic genius and dragging this thing out, she was making things difficult for the president and making things difficult for Mitch McConnell. And in fact, she made nothing difficult for any of them. And Democrats have been privately conceding it now for over a week that it actually turned out to their disadvantage to drag this thing out. And it would have been better 
had all of this stuff happened during the Senate. It's an interesting talking point being shared now by multiple members of the press that, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, uh, had John Bolton actually come out and said he would testify while the Senate was in trial as opposed to now, uh, the Republicans would not have been able to circle the wagon and would have thrown them into chaos. And it's all Nancy Pelosi's fault now. But you got a lot of people in the media who are emotionally invested in the idea that Nancy Pelosi is a strategic genius. And because they're emotionally invested in the idea that Nancy Pelosi is a strategic genius, they've decided to move the ball. They've decided to move the ball and say, oh, wait, this is really to help Joe Biden. She's a strategic genius. She's going to keep Bernie Sanders stuck in the Senate and Elizabeth Warren and the radical progressives. They're not going to be able to campaign. And this is all about helping Joe Biden now, Nancy Pelosi. She's such a genius. It doesn't matter what Nancy Pelosi does. If Nancy Pelosi were to fall on her face tomorrow, the media would say she's a strategic genius out there showing that gravity really exists and Donald Trump's a liar. The press has lost their ability to tell the truth. The press has lost the ability to be honest. They're so busy with the narrative that orange man bad that they have emotionally invested themselves for multiple weeks on the idea that Nancy Pelosi was some sort of like five-dimensional chess deep thinker outmaneuvering Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. And you had members of the media willingly pushing the narrative, members of the media openly bragging about Nancy Pelosi, girl power narratives and all that crap. And it turns out that it undermined the Democrats, it provided the Republicans time to unify on a strategy to help the president, and now it's hurting the Democrats on the campaign trail. And those Senate Democrats are livid. Because while there are concerns about Bernie Sanders on the left, there are also concerns that Bernie Sanders has such a loyal following that they need him to lose fair and square because a lot of those people refused to vote in 2016. A lot of Bernie Sanders' Bernie bros decided, you know, if Bernie's not going to win because the deck was stacked against him by Hillary Clinton and, and the like, then a pox on both your houses. I'm either voting for Donald Trump or I'm not voting at all. And now here comes Nancy Pelosi making it look like she stacked it in favor of Joe Biden by dragging this thing out so Bernie can't campaign in New Hampshire and Iowa. They're going to be back on a pox on both their houses and sit it out. And the Democrats need every vote they can, and they're not going to get them because it looks like Nancy Pelosi rigged it for Joe Biden against Bernie Sanders. That's not brilliant strategy. It's campaign suicide for the Democrats. That's what Nancy Pelosi's gotten you. But the press has so been so busy praising her, and she and the Democrats all believe the press, not the reality of the situation. And that's going to cost them in 2020. Politics, news, religion. Eric Erickson talks about all the things you're not supposed to talk about. Every weekday. And some cooking, too. Now, uh, I want to circle back to an earlier issue, and that is of your ability to be good activists uh, and not just passive listeners. I have an email list uh, that I use to connect you to the issues of the day in the legislature as it's meeting. Uh, and if you want to subscribe to it, you may get the occasional text message to take action immediately. But what you do is you text the word ARMY to 33777. Uh, and if you text ARMY to 33777, 
then you will be added to the email list. You'll get a text back saying, um, what's your email address? And when there, when the need arises, you'll get notification of here's what's happening in the state legislature and here's how you can support it or you can stop it. Here's how you can text your member of the state legislature. If you want to see the ultimate system in action, I, I will pull back the veil a little bit for you and show you. There, there's a resolution before the state house right now uh, authored by state representative David Clark. It needs 15 members of the state house to sign on to it. It's got 10 right now. It needs five more to call on the speaker of the house to step aside and if you want to see the fully operational grassroots activist system in the state of Georgia, text the word speaker to 52886 and you will get back immediately a link to the action center. And you'll be able to call your state representative and tell them to sign on to David Clark's resolution. This needs to happen. Here's why it's so important. The Republicans in the state house hold the state house by 15 seats. The Democrats think they can take back the house. I actually don't think it's going to happen, but they're going to make it brutally painful because of the speaker scandals. But if you get 15 Republicans to sign on to David Clark's resolution, it suddenly neutralizes the whole thing. Because that's their majority. Suddenly, it's the Democrats. And if the Democrats aren't going to stand up and take on the Speaker, when 15 Republicans are willing to take him on, suddenly they own the Speaker. They own all the problems of the Speaker. They, they absolutely, it's their issue. If the Democrats in Georgia cannot join these 15 Republicans to oust the Speaker when they would have a majority, they would have the votes to do it, well, then suddenly it's them. And when they come campaigning in November and say, hey, the Republicans let this guy in power, you say, no, 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 no. None of you wanted to join with the Republicans to oust him, and, and there were enough Republicans, there were 15 of them willing to do it, and none of you wanted to go along with him. It's your fault, Democrats. It becomes their problem. That's why you need 15 Republicans. You need the Houston Gaineses of the world. You need the Dale Washburns of the world. You need state representatives across Georgia to sign David Clark's resolution to oust the Speaker. Text Speaker to 52886. See the power of the system. And if you want to join the activist army, text ARMY to 33777 and you'll be subscribed and you'll be able to take action this legislative session as they convene in Atlanta today.